Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Welcome, everyone. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Dr. Ronald Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a professor of family medicine, psychiatry, and oncology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. There, he directs mindful practice programs. He directs the Center for Communication and Disparities Research and the Dean's Teaching Fellowship Program. His landmark article, Mindful Practice, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1999, has actually revolutionized physicians' view of their work, and his writings are required at over a third of medical schools in the U.S. Dr. Epstein has been named one of America's best doctors every year since 1998 by the U.S. News and World Report, and today we're going to discuss his new book, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Dr. Ronald Epstein, welcome. I'm glad to be here. And I am very glad to have you here. So I have very much enjoyed your book. I'm wondering, who did you write the book for? Um, you know, I wrote it for the general public and also for health professionals, kind of straddling this line um, and recognizing that we have many areas of common interest uh, and, and that I've spent much of my career writing exclusively for professional audiences. I thought it would be important to include the public in this dialogue. Well, it was definitely eye-opening. I can, I can attest to that. Tell me what led you to the spiritual practices that became the foundation for what you preach and teach. Uh, well, th this goes way back. Uh, in, uh, when I was 16, I, I learned how to meditate. Uh, and first it was transcendental meditation. Then I became interested in Zen meditation. And this was at a time when um, a lot of intellectuals and writers and poets and, and artists and, and uh, were really turning to the East to try to understand who they are as people and what their place is in the world. Uh, and this was the 1970s, a pretty heady time. And for me, meditation was something that was meaningful and it stuck. And I, I have continued now for well over 40 years. Mm-hmm. You keep on referring to mindfulness as being almost a, a cognate for attending, um, as an attending physician. There seems to be so much working against mindfulness. Uh, where do you even start? Yeah, yeah. Well, you bring up two points here. One is that, you know, mindfulness has become very popularized, and the word is now a household word for many of us. In, in medicine, everyone has a sense of what it means. But in, in my view of, of, of the world, and actually in, in a Buddhist worldview, mindfulness is only one of many qualities that really help you be effective and compassionate in the world. Um, it's, 
it's not only your awareness of your state of mind, but how you how you actually act in the world, what you say, what you do, what profession you choose, all of those things. So I see mindfulness as part of a, a larger package of defining one's relationship to the world. Uh, the... In medicine, I think the best doctors have always been mindful, even though they may not have that word to describe what they do. If you look at paintings from the 19th century, there are pictures of doctors sitting patiently by a bedside, uh, connoting that they're paying full and undivided attention to the patient who's in front of them, even if they couldn't necessarily do anything to cure them. So I think that, um, that that quality of mind has always been valued in medicine. It's just that we haven't had words to fully describe it, nor outlined a method for achieving it. And so that's really what I, I was pointing to uh, uh, in, in my article from 99 um, and, and even more so in the book that, uh, um, that, the, that it is possible to cultivate a mindful practice as a health professional. And, and I think the important thing for you know, all of us when we uh, become patients or even when we're thinking about our own place in the world is that that same quality of mind is not just about doctors and about medicine or, for that matter, about Buddhist practice or, or anything else. It's really no matter what you do in life. If, you, if you're an architect or a teacher, if you're, uh, um, if, if you're an artist, if you're, you know, just whatever it is that you do, uh, if you are able to be aware of your state of mind and your quality of mind, you can do whatever you do in, in a more uh, integrated and, I think, fulfilling way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I also remarked to myself that it was particularly applicable to clergy, bringing this, this well, state of Yeah, absolutely. I think any, uh, you know, it's, it's especially important in any profession in which you have direct contact with suffering human beings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clergy, the police, the military, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, counselors of any sort, teachers. I mean, these are all people who are encountering other humans who are suffering. Indeed. And you spoke of other qualities besides mindfulness. In particular, you mentioned in the book compassion and empathy. You make a distinction between the two. Can you well, you know, I, I think the reason I make it as as much of a distinction is because in medicine, there, there's definitely been progress in the way that doctors are trained. When I when I was in medical school, the word empathy really didn't it wasn't part of the language, it wasn't part of the vocabulary, and now medical students all have courses in how to communicate with patients, uh, and and they learn what empathy is and why it's important. So it it is on everyone's radar screen. Whether they do it effectively or not is another story, but at least it's there uh, and and considered important. Um, and uh, but what I found was that um, and empathy is defined in a number of ways, but in medical training, it's usually defined in a very cognitive way. It's getting an understanding of what the other person is experiencing and then reflecting that understanding back to the other person. So saying something like, I see that you look sad, um, or, or, or something like that. You know, uh, And it could be a statement, it could be a question. 
I found something incomplete about that because it, uh, in the way empathy is typically taught in in medical schools, um, it has a certain cold and sterile quality about it, uh, and it might be accurate, but patients don't only want someone who can recognize uh, their emotional state. They actually want someone with whom they have a relationship, who has a little bit of skin mm-hmm. in the game. And, mm-hmm. and so compassion starts with that same recognition of an emotional state in another person, but it takes it in a slightly different direction. It, uh, when you're compassionate, you actually resonate with the other person's experience. You actually feel a little bit of their pain. And we know that this happens neurobiologically. If you do, um, they've done studies where they've had doctors in scanners, in MRI scanners, witnessing patients undergoing painful procedures. And as you would expect, the same parts of their brains light up as if they were actually experiencing that same pain themselves. So we know that physicians actually have this capacity, just like all of us, to, um, to not only understand, but to mentally enact, mentally reenact the experience of another, at least as well as we understand it. Uh, so we know that doctors are feeling pain when patients are suffering. Uh, the problem is what you do with that pain. And this is a place that I think a lot of us get stuck because in medical training, we don't really learn what to do with it. Uh, just simply acknowledging and saying something to a patient may not be enough. You may feel that you, uh, what, what may actually be more helpful is feeling that you're making a difference, that you're actually doing something to alleviate the other person's suffering. And that act, that compassionate act of, of relieving another's suffering actually acts as a reward to ourselves. So uh, it's kind of known in, in psychology circles that for often giving a gift gives you a greater sense of reward than receiving one. And the same thing is, is true with, with compassion, that expressing compassion to another person, even though you might personally feel uh, some pain or doing a compassionate action, uh, will trigger the what are called the reward circuits in the brain more powerfully than if you're actually the recipient of a compassionate action. So, hmm. so it's um, uh, so that that that's really why I uh, I think there needs to be a move in medicine to help physicians and I, I, I would just say health professionals or human service professionals in general not only be able to define and reflect another's experience, but actually to feel a bit of that and act on, the, on, on behalf of the other person. And that's really what compassion is about. In, in medical training, the word compassion just isn't there very much. I mean, we kind of assume that it's a quality of everyone going into healthcare and that it's somehow innate, but I don't think it is. I think it's something that we actually have to cultivate in ourselves and, and when we have students and people learning from us, help them cultivate it themselves. And I suppose that an act of compassion could be as simple as... as um holding someone's hand or or prescribing an extra dose of painkiller? Well, it, well it, compassion takes many forms, and partially what you need to do is ask the patient what they need. Often we make mm-hmm. assumptions, 
And again, uh-huh. this is true in life in general. You know, you, you meet someone who's, you know, had a, some kind of loss or some kind of difficulty, and all, and, and just instantly your own mind kind of is constructing what that might be like for that person. But, but some of that may be fantasy. You, you may not really know unless you ask, saying, well, I know you just lost a, a loved pet, let's say. You know, what was that like? What's going on? Has that been difficult? Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, often we don't ask about the other person's experience, and then we, then we act doing things that we think are compassionate, but in fact aren't really hitting the mark. So it's really making that connection internally. Absolutely. There's no substitute for it. Yeah. Ron, what is your website? Uh, uh, My website is uh, ronaldepstein.com. It's very simple. So... So it's Could easy, easy to find, and, and you know, there's, there are some resources there, including publications and videos and things like that. Yeah. Great, great. Now, you mentioned the painting of a physician stand, sitting by a bedside, possibly, you know, holding a patient's hand. That is really a, a bygone era that the modern uh, medical establishment really doesn't seem to have the time in its system for with the pressures of time and cost and um, how do you reconcile modern medicine organizational medicine with these values that you're promoting um, well you know I uh, I think you know most of the doctors I know are trying very hard to do the best they can, not only in a technical sense, but also to treat patients as people. I think the problem is 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 several fold. One is that medicine's become very complicated. When I started practice thirty three years ago, there were maybe five or six different pills that you could take for diabetes, and now there are about thirty. Uh, there were no drugs for AIDS, and now there are several dozen. Uh, antibiotics, the same thing, heart medications. Um, so medicines become more complicated, and that takes up more real estate in your brain, if you will. Uh, so the second thing is that the, the pace of medicine has just increased, and this is largely because of uh, of the corporatization of healthcare. that uh, medicine is become an industry and unfortunately often treated as if it were a factory where your goal is throughput and not really considering that the products of healthcare are human beings, if, uh, you know, the health of human beings. So I think that's a, a real challenge that we all face. And, uh, and I think the, 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 the third challenge is just that, uh, it's a kind of a value structure that if it's um, if it's physical, it's more valued than if it's emotional or spiritual. And if you ask the doctor that directly, of course they would say, of course not. Of course, the spiritual life is important, and of course, uh, patients' emotions are important. I do a lot of research where I audio record conversations between doctors and patients, so I get to hear exactly what happens during those consultations. And this is all with people's permission. And 
And what you find is that when a, a physical complaint is raised, you know, someone has chest pain or, um, you know, their leg hurts or something, that um, that physicians' attention very quickly go towards those concerns. But if they mention a more emotional or existential concern, like I don't know what to do with my life at this point, or um, gee, I'm thinking about retiring, or you know, this, this, that treatment kind of sounds scary to me, often those things just kind of fly right by unacknowledged, as if they weren't um, important components of uh, of medical care. And I think we all know otherwise that that. Patients and also doctors are complete human beings, and we need to treat ourselves and also those who we care for that way. Which brings up another point that you make about uh, doctors' vulnerability to burnout and what in the system leads to burnout and how can you combat it? Well, I like to think of burnout as kind of an erosion of the soul. It's when you, when what you, it's a realization that what you're doing on a moment-to-moment basis doesn't truly reflect who you are as a person, that there's this disconnect, this sense of fragmentation. And it may manifest as, as emotional exhaustion. It may manifest as treating other people as objects. It may ma- manifest as going through the motions but not really engaging with your work. But I think fundamentally the, the issue of burnout is, uh, is, is existential. Now, why that happens is the reason it's variable. They've always been burned out doctors. If you Actually, if, even if you read Plato, uh, he describes different kinds of doctors in one of, one of the dialogues. And, and it's remarkably, remarkably current, even though that was written 2,500 years ago. So, but the epidemic of burnout among doctors and nurses and others in the healthcare system, the, the, the huge increase, I think, represents that disconnect between what you do moment to moment and, uh, and what your aspirations really are. But the healthcare system has a lot of responsibility for this by creating computer systems and electronic health records that draw your attention away from the patient in the interest of administrative or billing demands, I think is, has been really malignant. It's, it's really uh, soured a lot of doctors on, on the work that they do. Uh, doctors now spend more time in front of a computer screen than they do a face-to-face with a patient by far. Uh, none of us went into medical school with that in mind. And the same thing is true in nursing and probably a lot of other social service um, uh, 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 professions. It's just um, it, uh, it's, it's an unfortunate reality that uh, I'm hoping will change now that health administrators are beginning to wake up that this is part of the problem and not just part of the solution. Well, you know, we... Try, as you know, as a doctor, we're always treating the symptoms. I was in hospital administration many, many years ago in the era of paper records. And I know (laughs) that finding records and keeping track of them and getting them to the right place was the bane of our existence. So the electronic medical record in that respect is definitely a step forward. Oh, it's been fabulous. And in terms of information retrieval, 
uh, it's it's really really useful. I, I have it at my fingertips, and I can get things much much faster than I ever could. The problem becomes with information entry, and if you're trying to have a deep conversation with a patient, but recognizing that you need to get that note done by the end of the afternoon, otherwise you won't be able to get paid for that visit, which is often the case now. Another question that I had, I was taken by your comment that doctors are uh, tribal, that that's a challenge to um, their manifesting presence in relation to their patients. What did you mean? Well, I think we all are. As humans, we're, we're hardwired to be tribal. We, we crave affiliation with people who we see as like us, and, uh, and we defend ourselves against those who we think might be competing for resources or threatening in some way. I think that's, um, you know, and I think that's part of, part of the human psyche. But in medicine, it plays out in an interesting way because, um, you know, we want to think that we are treating everybody the same. Uh, but in reality, I think as humans, we, we don't. We always harbor some biases, some preconceptions, and sometimes fears about some mm-hmm. individuals just on the basis of who they are. And I think it's something that we need to confront uh, as a profession and also as a society uh, that, you know, sometimes those fears are realistic, but very often they're totally unfounded. I'll just give you an example of, of, um, of a bias in medicine, for example. If, you just, if, if a physician sees a new patient on their schedule and, they're, uh, and they see that the patient has a diagnosis of lung cancer, they might then start assuming, well, this person's a smoker. And they might be thinking, well, this person is someone who doesn't take care of themselves. And therefore then begin thinking this is, this is someone who will be difficult to deal with in some way. So that kind of chain of associations uh, happens to many people. But in medicine, I think it, it's particularly uh, challenging and, and gets in the way of, uh, of forming uh, trusting and secure relationships. Yeah. And you also mentioned that that makes it a challenge when patients themselves, uh, physicians themselves become ill because they don't think of them on themselves on that side of the bed covers. Well, yeah, I, I, I've been puzzling why doctors make such bad patients. And it's really true they do. Um, the former chair of my department a uh, family physician had taken care of many, many people with heart attacks when he himself had a heart attack, stayed home for four or five hours before going to the emergency room. Now, why do doctors do things like that? Um, it, uh, I think it's because we really fear being ill. Uh, and it's not just because we know too much, but because the role of the, of the sick person is something that's foreign to us, as if, as if that we belong to the tribe of healers and others belong to the tribe of sufferers or, or ill people. Uh, so doctors don't take particularly good care of themselves when they get ill. Uh, and, uh, and I think it also makes, that same phenomenon makes it a little bit more difficult for us to connect to people who are suffering, especially suffering in particular ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also point out that physicians can make very different medical choices when it comes to themselves than they would recommend to a patient. Why is that? 
Um, well, again, it's a, it's an issue of role that we choose to adopt. That um, that um, or just think about this issue. You know, can, it, it's it's really hard to know someone. Uh, it's really hard to know yourself as others would know you. Um, and and I think that um, physicians don't really. Uh, have a sense of how they might deal with an illness themselves if they had it, and then instead rely on abstract principles that, uh, or, or values that they assume that a patient would have. So I think for physicians, the default assumption is that patients want everything done. Uh, and everything meaning the most aggressive, invasive uh, treatments. And uh, that assumption is false on two grounds. First of all, uh, some people will prefer comfort or cure in certain, or attempted cure in some circumstances. And also some people who are ill come to the doctor really just because they want to feel understood. They're not really expecting a drug or a surgery or some kind of treatment. The symptom is somewhat tolerable, but they just need to have someone else uh, Hear their symptoms and make and say that they're legitimate, that they're real. Uh, so it's really hard to know what what patients always want, and I think that physicians often don't fully understand that until they become patients themselves. I, I can certainly understand that. Again, harking back to my days working in a hospital. I know a lot of GPs, um, this was in a a country with socialized medicine. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of GPs would say that the patients would come simply because they wanted to reach out and have human connection, because otherwise they were particularly elderly. Yeah. Well, that's that's true, but I can even think of my own experiences that, um, uh, you know, uh, I think we all have illnesses that we know medicine might not be able to do a real lot about. Uh, so uh, in my case, it's kidney stones. They, you know, I've had several. They're very painful. They last for a while. I get pain medicine. They get better. But there, there's more to that experience than just the physical pain. There's the knowledge that, you know, this can happen any time. It's a randomness. It's a feeling of vulnerability. Uh, I think about what would happen if I was on a long plane flight, if I was flying to Tokyo and I had a kidney stone on the plane. You know, these, these kinds of things. And, and just that realization from my own illness experience um, is enough for me to begin to appreciate that for patients who are facing other illnesses, that the physical part of the illness may not be the most frightening or the most concerning they really just want they want to to be able to have someone share in the uncertainty or share in a difficult decision so i I think that's um but getting back to the issue about um why physicians treat patients the way in in a different way than they would for, for themselves i think it partially has to do with that um that difficulty changing the chip because physicians themselves, it really requires that you see yourself as, as a potential patient when you're, when you're taking care of someone who's ill. 
And that's kind of scary. I think we often want to avoid those kinds of thoughts. I think it's natural as humans to try to distance yourself from that possibility because none of us want to think of ourselves as more vulnerable than we actually are. And yet that's exactly what you're trying to teach uh, when you teach mindfulness and compassion to your medical students. Exactly. So, so, but I think that you, when you teach people to be mindful of their own vulnerability, you also need to teach them to find some kind of anchor in their lives so that they can actually tolerate that uncertainty and live with it without trying to pretend that it's not there or make it go away. And so for me, my meditation practice has served in that role. It's grounding. I do it every morning, and I bring bits and pieces of that into my everyday work and my everyday life. Uh, it's the translation of that state of um, observation and equanimity that you develop in a meditation practice. But I think for other people, it's something different, and and so I don't I don't really want. I know that meditation isn't for everybody, and so you need to find your own way of finding that space in which you can feel grounded and whole. And there's nothing in the training that most of us receive, uh, unless we're, you know, becoming clergy or, or doing doing something in a more spiritual realm, uh, or perhaps becoming a psychologist might offer some of that. But in general, in our society, we tend to abstract out those qualities of um, groundedness and knowing yourself and saying that's, you know, that's part of your private life. It's not part of what you are trained to do as a professional. I, I, just, I think that's incomplete. Right. What would you say is the role of intuition in medical practice? Well, um, Intuition is a, is a double-edged sword. Uh, sometimes, I'm sure we've all had this experience, sometimes you have this sense that, you know, in terms of your own health, you have the sense that there's something really wrong and something not quite right. And, and that can be really, really useful. And often that drives people to physicians or to other healthcare professionals. But sometimes that intuition is misguided. Sometimes you interpret your own symptoms in a way that's either you overreact or underreact uh, based upon what you, your own life experience. And I think the same thing is true for, for health professionals, that um, an informed intuition is really, really powerful. For example, when I, when I was a medical student, I remember meeting pediatricians who would take one look at a kid and say, that kid looks sick. Okay, and then I would ask them, "Well, what does look sick mean? I mean, how do you, you know, I'm just a medical student. How do I know when someone looks sick and when someone doesn't?" And you know, and that generally would stop them in their tracks and say, "Well, they they just kind of look sick." And so, so I, as a student, you know, as a curious kind of person, um, uh, would uh, would try to take that apart. Well, maybe the, the the child is a little pale. Maybe they're not moving a little as much. They're uh, listless, they're not following you with their eyes as much as they would otherwise. Uh, 
But I think that intuition is really an informed intuition from years of practice. And now when I have a, a, a sick kid in my practice, I'll say the same thing, that that child just doesn't look right. They're sick, and I'm usually right. So, so that kind of intuition is an informed intuition. It's from uh, observing uh, lots of patients and also observing yourself. Uh, so I, I think that that's been under-recognized. Uh, in life in general and in medicine specifically, we tend to think that we can objectify everything. We tend to think that the most important knowledge is, is what you learn from books. But I, th- I, I, I think you need both. I think you need that intuitive side that acts as a corrective for, for the analytic side of your thinking. And then you need an analytic side to balance that out. So you really need to use your whole mind, not just part of it. There must be an element of trust in that and trust in yourself and your experience as well. Well, it's trust, but it's, 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 it's trust mixed with skepticism. Because, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you Great know, it, the human capacity for self-deception is enormous. And, uh, and I've misread people and I've misread patients. And, and whenever that happens, it's very humbling. So just maintaining that beginner's mind to say, okay, um, this, uh, you know, my intuition's telling me this, but is there another way to see this? Is there, you know, what would, what would a trusted colleague say about this? What, um, so it's a way of trusting your intuition on the one sense and then being able to step out of, outside of yourself and say, okay, is, is there another way to look at the situation? Right. I, I was actually just going to ask you about applying a beginner's mind. Um, you you also talk about the role of resilience um, as a necessary attribute to maintaining equilibrium. I guess. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? One metaphor that I like to use is, is kayaking. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a kayak or own a kayak, but um, when you buy a kayak, they um, uh, they talk about two kinds of stability. The first, uh, what they call primary stability or primary instability, um, is how tippy the kayak feels and also how maneuverable it is. So if you want, you know, to be able to avoid obstacles and turn quickly, you want a kayak that has a fair bit of primary instability. But when you first get into one of those kayaks, it feels pretty tippy, and it feels like you might capsize, so it's a little scary, and you've got to get used to it. Um, secondary instability or stability refers to um, how likely it is that the kayak will capsize. And in general, you want to have a kayak that has a lot of secondary stability, uh, but you may want a kayak that has a fair degree of primary instability. And I take that as a metaphor for um, how you, um, uh, metaphor for resilience, that, um, you know, right now there's a 60-mile-an-hour wind going past my house, and there are trees in front of it, and the trees are bending. And when the wind lets up, the trees bend back and restore their previous shape. Because the wind usually comes from the west where I live, most of the trees are actually slightly asymmetrical. They, they eventually, grow, the larger trees, eventually grow in such a way that they're better able to withstand a western wind than an eastern wind. 
And I think that um, uh, when talking about resilience in people, it's kind of the same way, that we learn to adapt to the stresses that we have to deal with. And, um, and that adaptation actually not only has us bounce back to uh, the um, shape we were in before, but actually helps us grow. You know, every time you take a step, you're, you stress your bones, but also your bones remold and reshape themselves uh, so that you'll be, bit, you'll be stronger. They'll be stronger the next time that you, that you walk or step. It'll be able to adapt to the circumstances that you're in. Um, so, but re, you know, resilience isn't all that we need uh, in dealing with difficult human problems. I think that a resilience is a is a step towards um, uh, a state of feeling connected, of feeling whole, a state of. Um, I like to use the word flourishing. Uh, you know, on my good days in the clinic, I feel that I'm flourishing. I'm really bringing all of myself to the task at hand. Mm -hmm. So you write that mindfulness is a community activity. I, I love that phrase. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, I, we can't go this alone. And I think in our culture, you know, if you look at articles in the popular culture about mindfulness, usually they'll have an image of one person sitting cross-legged by the side of a beautiful lake or in a meditation hall. And that's kind of the public image, the popular image that we have of mindfulness. And I think that's a, that's a bit of a problem because um, none of us can actually do this alone. We need to feel either, can, we need to feel connected to others that are engaged in a similar uh, pursuit or task. We need that kind of social support, whether it's really, whether it's, you know, going to a specific place where we meet others or just knowing that there are others engaged in a similar activity. I'll give, just give you an example. When I was in Bhutan in the Himalayas about 10 years ago, I uh, passed by a number of small hermitages where um, monks would go and do a three-year-long retreat. They, you know, they wouldn't actually see another human being for three years. Now, the villagers wow. would bring food to them every, every, um, every week, and, um, but, other, but would actually time it so that they, you know, they wouldn't actually have direct human contact with this, with this person. So, um, and I just asked, like, how does someone actually do that? I mean, that, that kind of isolation, that kind I mean, you know, we, we consider solitary confinement a form of torture, right? And so, and these are, here are people who are doing this and actually achieving some level of happiness. And the answer was because these, uh, these hermits know that there are other people in other hermitages around the country who are doing the same thing and for the same purpose, uh, same spiritual purposes. And also, they know that they are doing this only because of the support of the villagers who, uh, who, are, who are valuing and supporting uh, their efforts. So that, that sense of being part of a community uh, I have a little meditation app on my iPhone, um, and when I when I finish, it has a diagram of the world. It has little dots indicating where other people are meditating too, 
it's, it's totally silly in one sense because I have no idea who these people are. They're just dots on a map. But it gives me a sense of connection knowing that other people are engaged in a similar activity for a similar purpose. So, um, but I also mean mindfulness is a community activity in a second and possibly more pragmatic sense in our society, which is that the social institutions that purport to promote the health and well-being of our citizens themselves need to be mindful. They need to be aware of themselves as organizations. Uh, they need to be. They, they need to know how to listen to themselves in the same way that when you're meditating, you're listening to yourself. An organization can listen to itself, and. And so there are people who write about and try to create mindful organizations. It's a really powerful idea. And the idea is that the organization makes it so that mindfulness is the default option, so that, that that's what everyone's expected to be, and we, we kind of help you to be that way. I, I know it sounds a little utopian, uh, but those values really have been adopted by people, some people in the corporate world and also in the healthcare world. That kind of connects into what you described uh, as the Schwartz rounds. Can you tell us about that? Well, this is uh, you know, just one small effort. The, Kenneth Schwartz was a Boston attorney who died at a young age uh, of cancer and didn't have a uh, and had a very mixed experience. Uh, some of his uh, caretakers were um, were truly excellent, and others were less caring. And when he died, he left a bequest to create what was called the Kenneth Schwartz Center. And the major activity that one of the major activities that they've undertaken is to do what they call Schwartz rounds at major medical institutions throughout the U.S. and actually throughout the world now. So most most large hospitals actually have these now. And the idea is that um, you have a panel of healthcare professionals and possibly family members or even the patient themselves. Um, talking about the experience of caring for this unique human being. So it may be someone who is at the end of life. It may be someone with a, a ser an otherwise serious chronic illness that's quite debilitating. Um, uh, and um, uh, recently we had, for example, a patient who had had well over a thousand surgeries for um, for recurrent skin skin cancer. You know, these, these are skin surgeries with removals of, and he has a genetic condition that predisposes him to um, to this particular kind of skin cancer. So, I mean, just thinking about people who are suffering in really unique and sometimes unimaginable ways that affect us personally as healthcare professionals. So we're not talking about which treatment to use or what drug is best or what surgical technique is the best, but we're really talking about how do we work as a team in this healthcare institution with this patient to be fully present and to meet the needs of this person as a person, not just as a patient. They're very powerful. And, um, and these happen once a month here and, and in many institutions throughout the U.S. In my view, this is an exercise in mindfulness. It's, it's an, an collective mindfulness. It's bringing you in touch with your own strong feelings about the work that you do, and also um, with a community of others who are engaged in similar compassionate and um, similar actions with a compassionate intent. Oh, it sounds lovely. It reminds me of an interview yeah. I had a number of years ago with Dr. Len Saputo, whose practice in California actually puts together a multidisciplinary team to 
treat each patient. And uh, the idea of bringing multiple disciplines together with a single purpose of a, a patient's well-being is, uh, it sounds utopian. Um, is, well, this actually idea has been a lot of, yeah, is well, it actually on? multidisciplinary teams are now the, the norm in many cancer centers and intensive care units, and, um, and I do palliative care in the hospital, and we always work in a multidisciplinary team. So that, that, mm-hmm. that is, is second nature uh, to me at this point. Uh, and in my primary care practice, in my family medicine practice, we have nurse practitioners and nurses and nutritionists and pharmacists and uh, psychotherapists. And so we, you know, as all as part of our center, as part of a team. And so that collective responsibility for an individual is growing, and I think it's growing in a good way. It's not, you know, it's not the case in all aspects of medicine, but it's something that's clearly more prevalent than it was 20 or 30 years ago. What gives you the most concern for the future of healthcare in the U.S.? Um, in a word, the relentless corporatization of, of medicine. The the more that medicine is conceived as a product, or healthcare, I should say, it, conceived as a product in the same way that um, uh, that manufacturing cars would be seen as products. Uh, the more trouble we're going to get into because human beings aren't the same thing as automobiles. Uh, and, uh, and the kind of individualization that, that you need and also the kind of expertise uh, that you need to bring to restore individuals to health it has to be personal. It has to be individual. And it has to involve caring and compassion and, dare I say, love. Um, for the patient, because without those things, it's very difficult to sustain the work that we do. Um, so I, I think that um, that has all sorts of ramifications in terms of the way healthcare is practiced now, and it just doesn't have to be that way. In fact, it isn't that way in large parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I am going to kick myself, but I can't resist. Um, what is your perspective on the Affordable Care Act that is so much in the news today? Um, you know, again, I'm not speaking with a, a full informed expertise about all 2,000 and some odd pages of it. Um, what I will talk about is, is from my own experience as a healthcare professional, um, which is that it's, it essentially was, um, in my view, uh, a good step, uh, but a small step in the right direction. Um, it's provided insurance to people who haven't had it, uh, and it's um, provided a safety net for people who are seriously ill, who otherwise would be denied insurance coverage and access to care. Um, it's placed quality to some degree on the radar screen in terms of what is rewarded, uh, and um, it's promoted some better integration of care. The, um, what I would want to see is um, an expansion of those aspects of the Affordable Care Act that respect and honor humans as individuals um, and also think more about a population health approach, that is, think about not only caring for individual people, but 
but caring for an entire population, including prevention. So what I see, uh, what I see as um, as threatened, you know, I think is what everyone else sees. Uh, but I think the future at this point is pretty uncertain. Yeah. Are you hopeful for the future of healthcare? Uh, in some senses, I am, because I think that um, the consciousness of healthcare professionals has taken a few steps forward since I, I began doing this. I think the embracing of uh, uh, what what's called the biopsychosocial approach to healthcare, understanding that we are biological beings, psychological beings, and social beings, I think is, has really gained wider acceptance. Uh, I think that um, physicians have a greater sense of the social context within which they work. And in those ways, I, I feel optimistic. And also just in terms of mindfulness, I think mindfulness is a household word among health healthcare professionals now, and it wasn't 20 or 30 years ago. And it's largely a good thing. The major threats, well, I think, are, are political and corporate. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say that your book gives me uh, hope. Your book and your work give me hope for the future. So I want to thank you for both of them. Uh, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity by Dr. Ronald Epstein. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Ron. Thank you for having me. I'm Miriam Knight. I hope you join us next week. In the meantime, visit our website, ncreview.com. Lots of love and blessings. Goodbye. <laughs>